0: Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon Point Center it is October 2023 and for the fall season we have our journal club on a toxic lunch and we will proceed through ten items on the menu uh, the first item is nachos followed soon by salsa. but let's start with the nachos Colleen, tell us about the most recent nacho problem.
1: Okay, yes. So, uh, this paper I had uh, seems pretty um, pertinent given some recent events in France. Uh, this is a epidemiologic kind of look back at an outbreak of botulism in California in 2017. So California typically has just one or two cases of botulism a year but uh, in a relatively short period of time in early 2017 they had five cases jump up in the same county which obviously set off some some alarms Uh, they ended up having a total of ten cases uh, of which seven got intubated and one unfortunately uh, passed away and I thought this paper was a really interesting look at kind of the back end of the public health department's response to that. Uh, so they came in. Unfortunately, a lot of the patients were seen in, in you know emergency departments and clinics two to four times before being diagnosed. So a lot of them were pretty far along. By the time they got diagnosed, they were intubated. So a lot of the interviews happened with family and friends. But of the nine they were able to interview, they were able to identify that eight of them shopped at the same uh, gas station and bought the same product. In this case, was heated nacho cheese. And the, the last person denied eating the cheese but was an employee of the gas station. Uh, and unfortunately, the 10th the person was the one who, who passed away so they couldn't confirm with that person but their commute passed through the area that had the gas station. Very easy to imagine the person could have stopped for some food. Uh, so once they'd identified a likely location that this may have occurred, they went in they already were suspicious of the cheese because of what people said they'd purchased but they tested a ton of different things and did find uh, a large amount of Clostridium botulinum in the nacho cheese. They found that the cheese was supposed to be used within five days uh, when they took it out of the store it was already it had been opened at least twenty one days and when, when the first person ate out of it, it was already five days past its expiration date. So we don't know how long it was open, but longer than it should have been, and it was uh, almost 30 degrees cooler than the heat it was supposed to be kept at, and uh, they hadn't opened it the way they were supposed to, so definitely a lot of reasons why this uh, case of cheese might have become contaminated and, and started to grow things. Happily, they, uh, they didn't have this happen at any other gas stations with the same cheese. I was pretty impressed they actually went back to the company that sold it which had retained a couple bags of this lot which they were able to turn over to the health department for testing and confirm that like yeah when this left our facility it did not have botulism in the lot uh so it unfortunately did happen at the gas station uh so yeah i I thought it was a really really in-depth look they tested like serotype testing on all the patients which some of whom they were never able to uh, Cultivate any botulism from because it's not that easy to do, Uh, but for the ones that they were able to do the serotype testing successfully uh, a Lot of them had the exact same like very very closely related uh, Botulism to what was in the the nacho cheese, but they also found multiple strains which their conclusion was this nacho cheese was growing at least three different uh, serotypes of botulism in it, so it was a a real party in that cheese. Uh, Yeah, I... I, beyond just the public health side of things, on the emergency medicine side, I thought it was really unfortunate, but perhaps not surprising, that uh, most of these people took a lot of visits to get identified and you know, they all started having their symptoms relatively soon, but, you know, one of them took 22 days to get a diagnosis, wow. and, you know, that's that's sort of par for the course with botulism. It's a, it's a tough one.
0: Yeah, we often miss the first couple of cases until it's obvious that there's an outbreak and widespread publicized, and people come in with things as benign as a sore or scratchy throat or mm-hmm. trouble swallowing, which may be attributed to, again, sore throat until it mm-hmm. gets progressively worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so considering when you check, walk past the fast food place or the gas station, you see those little hot dogs rolling and the cheese sauce in mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. big pump stations.
1: Maybe keep walking. They're
0: supposed to be warmed up to 145, 135, sorry, degrees in California. Maybe. Recommended by the manufacturer, mm. even higher. They found it was only hundred and eleven yep. in the store. So you want to bring your little scanning thermometer to be absolutely sure how hot your cheese sauce is before you put them on your nachos. Um, it's probably the safest way to go. The thing is just not get your nachos at the gas station if you want to grow botulism. Yeah, unless you're going to get botulism.
1: <laughs> Turns out this is actually the preferred substrate for <laughs> botulism. Maybe our labs should use this for, uh, for cultivating it. Who knows? Yeah,
0: it grows any, it well anything that's like not very acidic. And um, yeah,
1: they uh, they did mention that the uh, the pH of this was almost six, which is within the expected pH of nacho cheese sauce, but is well above the four point six that you want to be below to inhibit growth. So it's a, a good medium for botulism.
0: All right. So that is the nachos, Now, you can't have nachos without salsa. So, <laughs> in the same county, back in old Sacramento, years before that, they had a outbreak with uh, the salsa. Yes. Kelly.
2: Yes. So, in May nineteen ninety one, six patients in Sacramento, California, um, came down with either cough or asthma after ingestion of one brand of refrigerated Mexican style salsa labeled fresh. Um, Two patients had a severe cough, some throat tightness, um, pretty much immediately after ingestion. Two other patients had status and asthmaticus within minutes of ingestion, requiring intubation and mechanical ventilation. And then two patients had mild flares of their asthma. And so when they kind of looked into this, the mean sulfite concentration of the six containers that were used... Was like 1800 parts per million, which is over five times the concentration of two other kind of brands they tried to compare this to. Um, in response to this, the uh, manufacturers removed sulfites from their product, and foods containing sulfites in 1988 uh, were told to no longer be labeled as fresh. So in these cases, this was sulfite sensitivity. Um, This is something that's commonly seen in patients who have underlying asthma and usually presents as bronchospasm. But you can also have urticaria, (coughs) uh, rhinoconjunctivitis, angioedema, anaphylaxis. So this can look very like allergic, anaphylactic picture. Um, The (coughs) kind of epidemiology of this about 4 to 5% of asthmatics um, in studies that they've done have sensitivity to sulfite. Um, with a greater than twenty percent decrease in FEV one, um, and their higher percentage of people um, sensitive if, if they're like steroid dependent, so there's a higher percentage of people who are sensitive to sulfites if they're steroid dependent. Um, overall, in this case, the none of the patients had like complete full like follow up with like methylcholine challenges, um, so they weren't completely able to follow up their kind of health um, beyond this point, but uh, it does look like they changed a little bit of their salsa labeling in the end, and now we can eat salsa <laughs> with no fear. But um, I think I was also reading that part of the sulfite um, compound was basically from the like dehydrated onions in the salsa, I believe. And so that was, like, the main component
0: of what caused such a high sulfite concentration. Yeah. So sulfite allergies were more common way back, about a few decades ago. The biggest offender and I was looking for an article on this and I couldn't find it, was that pretty much almost all imported shrimp in this country had metabisulfite added to it to eliminate, like, the black spots that you sometimes see in shrimp as they're shipped and aged. So you want that nice, pretty pink shrimp out there. It's so a little, you know, sick-looking shrimp. <laughs> so it had metabisulfite added to it. People used to have shrimp allergies, but almost the vast majority of them really were to metabisulfite, and it's also in salad bars, in this case, salsa as well. So a lot of people tell you they're allergic to things. It may just be this, rather than a true allergy to the substance or food that they were looking at. But yeah, it's, now it has to be on the label. And since 1985, uh, there's a ruling about shrimp specifically limiting uh, the exact parts per million to a very low level. But still, it's in there. It's not that they took it away, it's just lower levels. So, so it's more sensitive at lower levels. All right, great. Moving along as we work our way through the appetizer section, um, nothing like some pot stickers at a wedding. Um, and
3: tell us all about that. Ah, uh, we have KAI. Yeah. So uh, this is, uh, as mentioned, this is the case of toxic pot stickers, maybe question mark. Um, now this was published in the the case reports out of uh, Mass General Hospital, kind of presentation in the New England Journal. So rather than doing it in the way that they do, where they break it down section by section, you know, history and physical, I'm just going to clump some of these together for the sake of time, but. This is the case of a 38-year-old woman with a history, already a pre-existing history, of anemia that was being worked up, um, who presented with shortness of breath, jaundice, headache, dizziness, and darkened urine several hours after attending a wedding um, where she ate pot stickers uh, containing salt-cured meat, a glass of wine. Um, and those are kind of the pertinent reported consumption. Um, But what was odd was no one else at the wedding, everyone ate the same food, had any sort of similar symptoms. Uh, Her review of systems was negative for abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fever. Um, She had no history of any sort of liver disease or any illicit substance use. She wasn't using herbal supplements. Um, And uh, seven years prior, she had lived in Vietnam, but otherwise for the last seven years had not really traveled Uh, internationally. Uh, She did work in a wire manufacturing plant, um, and unfortunately, because she was adopted, she did not know her family history. Uh, So very relatively thorough kind of evaluation of this, because of course her presentation was so shocking. Her examination, she had jaundice and icterus, she had pale conjunctiva, she had this early systolic murmur at the right upper sternal border, um, and a pronounced apical impulse, which i definitely checked for. Um, (laughs) Vital signs were remarkable for a heart rate of 98 beats per minute, blood pressure of 112 over 64, 24 breaths per minute for her respiratory rate, and then an oxygen saturation of 85%, which of course puts all our antennae up for a particular diagnosis. Um, But her labs, so she did have an anemia of around 8.1. Um, normal platelets, her white count was a little bit high, and her reticulocyte count was 1.8%, which the uh, person providing commentary on this case did know it was a little bit odd. Um, her bilirubin was 9.3, her LDH was 2,000, um, uh, both very consistent with concerns for hemolysis, um, and then her AST and ALT were 120 and 41, respectively they didn't comment on the rest of the electrolytes they said that they were normal her chest x-ray was normal her EKG was normal they sent off hepatitis testing of course being uh, a particular concern for this jaundice and a b and c hepatitis were all negative um and so obviously in this presentation of a person with evidence of hemolysis anemia and then this hypoxia versus hypoxemia um the the number one concern that was on people's mind was oxidant stress leading to methemoglobinemia. Um, So they sent off uh, an ABG with a co that showed methemoglobin of 8.8%. So a little bit elevated, nothing quite what we would consider alarming, or so alarming as to, to warrant kind of more aggressive treatments, but certainly given how overall sick she looked, they decided... The treatment team at that time decided that they should treat with methylene blue Um, and so they did provide methylene blue Uh, later on her anemia fell to 6.5 for the hemoglobin um, and she ended up getting transfused with four units of packed red blood cells Um, but because of this anemia methylene blue administration followed by a further decline in, in anemia in a person with a diagnosis of an undifferentiated anemia, they decided they the thought process suddenly turned to does this person have G6PD deficiency, which I'll get into in a minute so they tested the G6PD activity and did note that it was slightly low, it was 3.9 uh, which is just below the lower acceptable limit of normal um, and so uh, and so the, the case concluded by her eventually starting to improve <coughs> Um, but the big, the big issue with this is, so and we spoke a bit earlier in, about um, methemoglobinemia where we have the oxidation of our, our iron bound in heme resulting in having impaired ability to, really impaired ability to let go of oxygen. Um, and that can cause the, the concern, of course, being, oh, well, 85%, that must mean that they're hypoxic and or we're not getting oxygen to the tissues. But the other half of this being it's reflection of an oxidant stress and so if we if that is there that's also damaging the red blood cell and can eventually lead to hemolysis so kind of those two wings are what we worry about and in patients with usually a higher level of methemoglobinemia um, that's when we start considering giving an antidote to try and turn that process around so that we avoid any of those kind of downstream ill effects um common things that cause methemoglobinemia were are oxidants, so uh, dapsone is of course uh, a poster child nowadays uh, any of the aniline dyes uh, we use a lot of those uh, for various testing and other purposes uh, but pyridium um, or uh, pyridine is an over-the-counter urinary analgesic that actually is an aniline dye uh, Primaquine, which is an antimalarial of course we spoke about the nitrates and the nitrites um, benzocaine, of course, the scourge of every post-pharyngeal you know, pharyngeal, uh, uh, numbing. Um, and then fava beans, of course, everybody's favorite, particularly in the setting of a uh, person with G6PD. Um, so why is it, Why was the G6PD such a big discussion point in this, in this case? And because the common teaching is, is that if you have G6PD, we should not be giving methylene blue. Um, and, and the reason is, is that G6PD deficiency is you're deficient in the enzyme that is part of the actual, um, the hexose monophosphate shunt, um, which basically means that we convert glucose 6-phosphate into 6-phosphogluconolactone, lactone. Um, nice wonderful chain of prefixes and suffixes, but basically the whole process uh, allows us to generate NADP into NADPH. And NADPH reacts with methylene blue to turn it into leucomethylene blue so that that can actually act to convert your methemoglobin back into normal hemoglobin. Um, So in the setting of a person who cannot make the NADPH, we can't activate the methylene blue. We never get our antidote. And on top of that, methylene blue is itself an oxidant. And if we have that oxidant hang around, the theory is, is that will lead to worsening oxidant stress in a person who already can't tolerate it, leading to worsening hemolysis. And so it is is generally considered a a relative contraindication to give methylene blue, even in the setting of methemoglobinemia, to patients with G6PD deficiency. Now, the the big caveat on this, because I was curious about this, um, two things. One, we say it's G6PD deficiency as if everybody who has it has no G6PD which is not the case. There are different types of G6PD deficiencies. Some people effectively just have decreased function. Um, And so some red blood cells might actually still have a functioning enzyme, um, which is actually kind of what you see in this case. They noted that it was low end of normal. That was during a hemolytic episode, meaning there's G6PD functioning. It's just in the red blood cells that are left behind. Um, So by kind of process of extrapolation or abstraction um you can you can then kind of theorize that if we give to someone who has just a little bit of reduced function you give them methylene blue technically there should still be some degree of conversion to glucomethylene blue and maybe then it'll work the second half of this is a person with g6 pd deficiency who's exposed to the oxygen stress that resulted in this whole methemoglobinemia um they might actually be on the road to hemolysis anyway. Um, And a lot of the case reports that led to this conclusion that we should not be using methylene blue in these patients um, show that it's like we administered it, or we administered it and it didn't work, and so we did it again and again. and So now we have a a mounting dose, or we administered it once, and then 24 to 48 hours later, hemolysis was noted. So it's really hard to, to fully blame the methylene blue. I'm sure there's a part that's contributing to it. Um, but it does, at least in my mind, raise the question of can we really, can we just full, completely say we shouldn't be using it? Um, as it is, it's a relative contraindication. You should definitely think twice before kind of blindly, you know, throwing multiple doses at these patients. Um, and then the other interesting thing is uh, the idea of just giving leucomethylene blue. Um, that is something we can theoretically do, although it's not necessarily clinically available. And there's at least now, at least as of last night, um, when I looked uh, uh, for more evidence about this, there's at least one article trying to make the argument that, hey, we should be looking into this um, and actually considering putting that out there. Because this is is a disease process that is known to be affecting at least uh, enough portions of the population that it's not infeasible to say that we might have to give this medication.
0: Yeah, it's an unusual case. Like I said, everybody at the wedding was fine except this one person who was susceptible due to genetic factors, so it wasn't really food poisoning. Food was probably prepared within reasonable limits, but the person had increased susceptibility unbeknownst to them due to a genetic variation, and they will go on and say that the cells got hemolyzed, the cells that had the least amount of G6PD in them, whereas the cells that remained still had some G6PD at sort the of level that they actually got, during the middle of the episode, it wasn't that bad? But had they got it under normal circumstances, it certainly might have been worse. All right. Moving on to the salad portion of our meal, we have some wonderful ahi tuna salad.
3: Howie, will tell us about.
4: righty, So I will start with the case here. This is a case from September of twenty twenty one. Um, And this was a single case report in an inland location of a 53-year-old male who arrived to the ER by EMS with the chief complaint of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, all of which came on abruptly one hour after eating an ahi tuna salad at a restaurant. Um, This man was in, uh, just in general, good health, and then the day that this happened, he was also feeling well. Um, he did know that the fish had a peppery taste, but he finished the salad anyways. <laughs> um, and then 10 to 15 minutes later, began to feel acutely ill. Um, on arrival to the ER, he was also known to have a headache and skin flushing. His vitals, when he got there, he was afebrile. His heart rate was in the 130s. His blood pressure was 88 over 57, and his respiratory was 24. He was diaphoretic, flushed. But did not have any chest pain or shortness of breath which is important in this case. Um, his EKG showed some ST depression in the infralateral leads with borderline elevation in AVR and so this kind of prompted the ED team to go down more of a cardiac pathway also in this patient, this 53 year old man, um, even though he had no cardiac um, history or risk factors. Otherwise though his labs were largely unremarkable. His glucose was mildly elevated, he had a mild AKI with a creatinine of 1.4, but his first depotum was negative. Um, so Epi was ordered for him, even though he didn't have any respiratory complaints, no airway edema or swelling, and continued throughout his entire ER state to not complain of either chest pain or shortness of breath. Um, he was also given steroids, H1 and H2 blockers, and fluids. And then 15 to 20 minutes after these treatments, all of his symptoms resolved, including his flushing, his heart rate normalized, he had resolution of his pruritus, and his EKG normalized, interestingly. So um, and the EKGs, I think, actually are in the reports. But his, the ST segments um, normalized. And then his repeat troponin was also negative. Um, this man was ultimately, he was admitted overnight for OBS, ultimately discharged after 24 hours in good condition. So um, this is a case of scombroid poisoning. However, given the kind of interesting presentation, especially with the EKG changes, they talked about some of the things that they had considered in the differential here. And so some of the things they talked about was Kunis syndrome, which I wasn't aware of. It's basically allergic angina. Um, However, this most often occurs in patients with underlying cardiovascular risk factors, which was not this patient. Um, And they also discussed a different kind of consideration for a toxic called ciguatera, but there were some important distinctions that led them to believe this was most likely scombroid and not this other toxin. Specifically, the time of onset was significantly you'd expect an onset that is hours rather than minutes. And then um, additionally, very interestingly, they have this temperature reversal, which is where cold objects feel warm and vice versa, which this patient also did not have. So talking about scombroid poisoning, this is mostly implicated in consumption of dark meat fish. The name comes after, originally they thought that this um, what only occurred in consumption of scombroid family of fish, but that's since been disproven. Um, and this toxin comes as a result of improper handling of the fish between when it's caught and when it gets served humans. So um, ultimately this poisoning or toxin is a result of high levels of free histidine in the fish. And so what happens is that histidine decarboxylase, which is found in multiple bacteria, including Proteus, E. coli, E. coli, Clostridium, and Pseudomonas, that live in these fish gills, um, end up being converted to histamine. And once it's converted to histamine, it's incredibly thermostable. So even if you cooked the fish, there'd still be high levels of histamine, which is why it's really important that when you're handling the fish, it needs to stay at a temperature of less than 40 degrees. So we can assume in this case that probably did not happen um and then additionally the onset of this toxin so it's a very rapid onset says 20 to 30 minutes and then symptoms last 48 hours however you'd expect remarkable improvement after being given antihistamines which we also saw in this patient um you know there is some consideration though because these symptoms similar to the achilles toxin are very concerning for a potential allergic reaction and slash or anaphylaxis and so i think that that can be you know, a little bit higher on the differential when the patient comes in and they don't look great, they have bad blood pressure and they've just eaten something. And so a lot of times epi is given to these patients even though they don't have any respiratory complaints, airway edema, and the epi also potentially helps is what I was saying. Um, but really the mainstay safe treatment is antihistamines. And then interestingly, also in this case report, they kind of talked about this is something that people who live in more coastal areas tend to be more aware of, but this case was an inland case. so. Just talking about the importance of even in inland locations being aware that this is a possibility for patients who would kind of fit this picture of having eaten fish. Um, yeah, that was
0: a good tip. So, scumboard, I think throughout your all your careers, you will see this. This is reasonably common. Mm. It often happens exactly like this. It's like somebody or area that's about an hour or two inland from the coast, where the fish is improperly not iced all the way, and it's, it's flesh which has histidine, like you said, is turned into histamine because it's colonized with a level of bacterial contamination. And too often, patients are told, never eat that tuna again or whatever the <laughs> was. It's really not an allergy anymore. It was an allergy to salsa or shrimp. It's really a contamination uh, of the product. I also wanted to talk about Kuna syndrome, which, mm-hmm. as you said, is rare, but people who have allergies can have cardiovascular EKG changes yeah. and sometimes go down the hole you know, cardiac code, you know, pathway without them finding any coronary artery disease, per se. Something really important to know. With more fish on the menu on our main course, Sammy, one of our favorite fishes is buffalo fish.
5: Yeah, especially me, uh, a lifelong Colorado buffalo. Uh, <laughs> this is the main fish we eat on campus, of course. That bison burgers. Um, so, uh, my paper is about a half disease from the buffalo fish. Um, so, uh, thanks for a visual stimulus for the fish uh, mm-hmm. for all our listeners out there. Uh, so, and uh, you know, without creating too much of a suspense, uh, the issue with this fish is that uh, you can get what's called half-disease, which is characterized by developing rhabdomyolysis after consumption of freshwater fish. Um, So uh, this uh, uh, talks about a case report of a 42-year-old woman who went out to lunch in Berkeley, California, and uh, was a health food enthusiast. So she uh, purchased this buffalo fish from a health food store, fried it up, uh, and then while eating it, uh, like some of our other papers have discussed, continued to eat it despite (laughs) getting symptoms, uh, (laughs) developed uh, diffuse muscle aches, fatigue, Uh, Started, uh, you know, especially lower extremities, lower proximal uh, muscle groups uh, the most developed finger and perioral paresthesias and then about three hours later said, it's it's enough of this, I'm going to the ER. So, uh, notably, uh, she did not have any GI symptoms, no fever, abdominal pain, no hot or cold reversal. So all of this to kind of suggest against other common seafood-related toxins that we might think of. Uh, she had normal vitals. Um, physical exam was notable for diffuse uh, kind of muscle group weak, uh, tenderness, and then weakness in basically all muscle groups, proximal uh, more than the rest. So she had difficulties. Time difficult time standing. Um, she did have normal reflexes, <clears throat> and as far as the other, workup. Uh, CBC and BMP and INR were normal, but uh, CK was pretty high. It was, uh, I believe, initially uh, initially 12,000, 15,000, and then eventually peaked at about 76,000. Other notable abnormalities were the liver enzymes, uh, where the AST uh, was also elevated at the beginning was... Um, about uh, 1200 uh, and then peaked at uh, 1481. Um, so um, she had about an eight-day hospital course where she was getting uh, supportive care, uh, eventually got to a point where she still felt weak and fatigued, had some muscle aches, but was able to you know get up, walk around. and um, you know they followed her for several months. Uh, and it took up to about 10 months before she was actually back to her pre-fish baseline. So um, a long course there. Um, So they sent this fish uh, for analysis uh, and then sent part of it also to what I'm imagining is some secret fish vault where they store other cases of suspected half-disease fish, and I'm not making this up. There is some place where they have a collection of these cases that are uh, essentially keeping these samples so that one day when they get more of a breakthrough as to what this toxin is, they can kind of refer back to those samples and try to figure out was this in fact a toxin? Because up until now, we still don't actually know what is the toxin. Um, So other uh, notable features of this uh, case um, was that uh, the patient also had these neuro and cognitive difficulties, uh, described uh, being unable to read more than a few pages at a time. Uh, And then difficult time focusing, losing their train of thought. Um, And again, that took several months uh, to return to baseline. Um, so we had known about half disease uh, back in the twenties, uh, discovered by the Germans. Uh, and I'm actually, not making uh, but uh, yeah, half, half or I guess like half, is uh, German for lagoon, apparently, and it was found in this uh, Konigsberg lagoon. That was the first case um, in the Baltic coast there. Uh, so you know, since then there's been uh, a number of cases uh, in the U. S. There's been about twenty three reported cases as of the timing uh, as of the timing of this article. Twelve out of those twenty three cases were buffalo fish, uh, but other fish, other culprits have been uh, salmon. Unfortunately, uh, looks like crawfish. Um, and then, you know, isolated cases of, they didn't list the all the exact species, but other freshwater fish. Um, so, uh, like I said, unable to, we have, have yet to identify the actual toxin, but it seems to be some sort of heat-stable toxin because all these fish are getting cooked and they're still causing this issue. Um, uh, there's a... There is a suspicion that it might be related to uh, another prominent uh, C-related toxin called palytoxin, because palytoxin uh, can cause rhabdo, uh, can cause these paresthesias, some similar fish uh, issues, <laughs> not fish issues, but uh, <laughs> they uh, classically would have GI symptoms, abdominal pain, more kind of diffuse symptoms um, and then there there has not been a palytoxin case, apparently, in any freshwater fish. So it's not palytoxin. <laughs> uh, so uh, in general, the treatment of this is supportive um, and activation of public health systems to you know, save a sample of this. So maybe one day we can figure out what this is. And uh, as of an article, again, talking about... Uh, disease um, like and from 2021 they still were calling it unknown toxin so this article this case score is from 2013 but unfortunately still a mystery
0: it's uh, ups- happens episodically and it seems to be multiple I mean, fish species so yeah. it's probably something gets bioamplified <coughs> like a harmful algae bloom for toxin like a paleotoxin like other Toxins we'll talk about shortly,
5: but buffalo fish was sort of the big one that happened first, and now it's also raw fish, notably in Brazil especially too. Yeah, notably Uh, buffalo fish is pretty tasty. Uh, Some have described it the best tasting fish that no one eats. Um, So it's unfortunate, but yeah. uh, So it, it seems like one of those things where not every buffalo fish you eat. It's going to have, you know, you're, you're, gonna, you're not going to get half disease, and it apparently is delicious, so, but eat it at your own risk. Sometimes
0: we back into the diagnosis because people get a Chem 20, and they find the transaminase is elevated, and they presume it's some liver toxin, but it really isn't the liver, it's muscle. It's yeah. one of the few things that is directly myotoxic. What it is, we don't know. One day we'll find out. So send your buffalo fish, and in those cases, <laughs> to Dauphin Island, Alabama which is where the FDA facility is, one day they will unravel the mystery of hock disease. I like that. All right. While still having the fish on the menu and having recently come back from Canada, we cannot leave our toxic lunch without talking about Canada's very own domoic acid poisoning. Emma?
6: Well, you... I was going to bury the lead a little more than that, but... (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is really seafood-heavy, y'all. Okay, I'm going to talk about an outbreak of toxic encephalopathy caused by eating mussels contaminated with domoic acid. This happened in 1987. Um, In Canada, there was this outbreak of an acute illness which was characterized by... GI Symptoms and Unusual Neurologic Abnormalities. And these occurred among persons who had eaten cultivated mussels. Um, and this article really goes through sort of how the health department in Canada uh, solicited reports from the public um, and compiled those and sort of had this public health response to a, a new uh, syndrome. Um, uh, okay, so they started getting these reports, and what was interesting is the illness was clearly different from paralytic shellfish poisoning, of, like, which they were already familiar with. It was in November of 1987, and the source of this outbreak was traced to these three river estuaries in Prince Edward Island in eastern Canada. So it started out with three people in New Brunswick and Quebec. They had rapid onset, confusion, disorientation, and memory loss within 24 hours of eating these mussels uh, that came from Prince Edward Island. Um, They took the leftover mussels and analyzed them for paralytic shellfish toxin with this mouse bioassay, which is how they test for paralytic shellfish poisoning. They, however, the test mice manifested this involuntary shoulder scratching, where they take their hind legs and scratch their shoulder, um, which is not typical of paralytic shellfish poisoning. So they thought, okay, maybe this is a new toxin. And when they did, got more muscles and did the same thing, the mice had the same reaction. So that was how they thought, okay, perhaps this is something new. And they suspended all muscle distribution until they could figure it out. Um, The case report that they offer here is a 68-year-old man. He does have some comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension. Uh, He came to the hospital, nausea, vomiting, confusion, four hours after eating some steamed-shelled mussels. So he was confused, disorientated, nothing focal on his neuro exam, Uh, had a little elevated white blood cell count. CT was normal, uh... CSF was normal, electrolytes were normal, and eight hours after his admission, he became hemodynamically unstable, Uh, he got intubated for um, profuse respiratory secretions, he had a labile blood pressure, he was completely comatose, he had these unusual ocular movements with a disconjugate gaze and grimacing, Um, but the EEG didn't show any epileptiform activity. Uh, his hospital course uh, was very long he was there for 86 days and he was sent home with severely uh, uh, severely incapacitated by poor short-term memory so just go back to the sort of public health response um, the, the Canadian Health Department had to determine okay what is a case of this now that we're hearing these reports after we got these first three reports we got to say what is a case so they define the case as vomiting diarrhea or abdominal cramps within 24 hours after eating muscles from Prince Edward Island or one neurologic symptom within 48 hours and that could include confusion memory loss disorientation se- uh, seizure coma um, and the local, so if you, so you would call this hotline and you'd be deferred, referred to a local public health department and they would do this standard questionnaire. And so they received all the questionnaires and that's kind of how they characterized what happened with these cases. Um, to talk a little bit more about these laboratory studies they did, they took the muscles and they in, they do hot acid extracts of the muscle and then they injected intraperitoneal intraperitoneally um, into these mice and this is apparently how they've always tested for paralytic shellfish poison Um, but again when they did this to the mice they would get this scratching reaction um, and that kind of helped them later on to determine uh, to help identify the domoic acid Um, and so here's about the cases that they got they got 250 reports And 107 met that case definition of GI within 24 hours, neurologic within 48 hours. Um, They got 99 questionnaires out of 107 who met the case definition, so that's not bad. Um, All of them but seven had vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal cramps. The next most common symptom was headache, which was in 43% of the patients. And the next most common was loss of memory, which was reported by 25% of the patients. The younger patients were more likely to have GI symptoms, but the older patients and men were more likely to have memory loss um, and require hospitalization. They had a really long range of sort of incubation. So some people said they got symptoms within 15 minutes. Others said 38 hours but the median was five and a half hours, so pretty quick. Um, Only 18% of these patients were hospitalized, um, and some of them were in the hospital for quite a long time, up to 100 days. Um, 12 of the patients were in the intensive care unit, um, and all the patients in the intensive care unit had neurologic dysfunction, so very varied coma, mutism, seizures, purposeless chewing and grimacing. Hiccups were described in five patients. Um, emotional lability and uncontrolled crying or aggressiveness were in six patients. Um, and then nine patients were intubated. For this like profuse secretion situation, which was described in the case report that they had, they seem it seems like they took the case report from the guy who got literally everything. <laughs> he got all of the things. Um, so three patients died, um, and they looked at the brains, and they had neuronal necrosis and cell loss, and uh, this was prominent in the hippocampus uh, and amygdaloid nucleus. Um, so, they were only able to get muscles from 10 of the people, like leftover, like, can I have your leftovers? Um, all of the mice had the scratching from the extracts of these muscles. They didn't identify any bacterial or viral pathogens, no heavy metals, no polychlorinated biphenols, no pesticides, no organophosphates. Um, but it wasn't until later that they figured out it was domoic acid. Sometime in December, they, they figured out it was domoic acid. Um, and so then they went back and tested the muscles. Um, you can see on the graph, uh, let me see. On graph, the first one, figure one, that is just a graph of the case reports. And you can see that the day after the distribution of muscles was suspended and the public warning was put out, they had like five more cases the next day and then they stopped getting cases. So it does show it's pretty effective at, um, you know, the public health response is pretty effective. They put out this public warning and then like the cases just dropped off completely. Um, 45 restaurants and 15 households were involved in this outbreak. Um, and Let's see, a little bit of discussion. Um, The domoic acid itself is a neuro excitatory amino acid Um, and the neurologic changes that are caused by this domoic acid are mostly cognitive, they were persistent and they did not resolve 24 months after the incident in most cases. and so they go on to say kind of how they determined or how convinced they are that domoic acid was the cause. Because at the time of this 1987 article, this was the first article that had reported this. So they kind of want to prove to you, like, OK, it's I swear it's the domoic acid. <laughs> so they say all the evidence supports this hypothesis. Um, domoic acid was the only toxin found. Um, only the fraction of muscle extracts containing domoic acid produced the characteristic hind leg scratching syndrome in the mice, and the mice would do the same thing if you injected them with pure domoic acid. But they do note that although that um, domoic acid was not found in the serum, plasma, or CSF of the patients, however, the interval between... The ingestion and the sample, and I assume until the actual um, assays to check for the domoic acid pr- may have contributed, you know, maybe it got consumed somehow or um, metabolized. Um, Democ acid is heat stable, it's a excitatory amino acid, and it's similar to canic acid and glutamic acid. Um, and the domoic acid and these muscle extracts and simulated canic, uh, uh, they would bind to these simulated canic acid receptors in the hippocampus of rats. So they're saying it has these predictable effects uh, as to where it'll bind in the rat uh, brain. Um, Okay, they go on to say that the source of the domoic acid is this Nietzsche pungens, which is a phytoplanktonic diatom, which is was present in an extensive bloom in this Cardigan River estuary in November and December of 1987. Um, they then go on to say just some of the clinical effects. It was, inter- it was very statistically significant that the memory loss um, was associated with male sex and older age. Older age kind of makes sense, but um, it was... Um, Yeah, the memory loss seemed to be a lot worse in men, sort of interesting, Um, and they think poor renal function may have been a common predisposing factor for people getting sicker, Um, but also in the ten cases where they had available muscles, guess what, the ones with more domoic acid got the patient sicker. Um, So just some limitations as far as what they wanted to do different in a future uh, outbreak. Probably not all cases were reported, obviously, but because only selected symptoms were included on in this questionnaire, the occurrence of other symptoms in this total syndrome couldn't be quantified because there was no place to report like other associated symptoms. Um, and then they cut off the uh, case definition at you had to have a symptom at 48 hours, um, but some people may have gotten symptoms after that and then they wouldn't be included in the case definition and so they think that they probably underestimated the total incubation period. Um, and that's about it. But now all muscles are tested for democ acid and, um, and so basically there's never been another case uh, in Canada and um, we get some occasional ones from self-harvesters but I've never had one personally. We've had um, paralytic. Not right. the domoic acid.
0: All right. So there's this is like the first demonstration that this new foodborne disease was related. to A big outbreak over the people. Yeah. And very quickly they descended on Prince Edward Island, figured this out, put out the warnings, and stopped the production of the mussels from this one river estuary. Um, and they found it, the domoic acid. Defined it. And they found Nitrichia pungens as the source of the harmful algae bloom. The why is all relevant to us way out here in Oregon is that we have. Nitzchia, Pseudo australis, another harmful algae bloom that does affect the Oregon and Washington coast every year, and they do test for domoic acid up and down the coast every year, and usually by midsummer, some of the species are banned or not allowed to be harvested if you follow the ban. Not everybody listens, so they always get a case or two that slips through. Well, there was a big outbreak here in 1991, not big, not as big as this, but small numbers, and now that you're right, they check as much as they can check, but people who just go out and go clamming, it's not just mussels, it's clams and anchovies and a variety of other species that are bioaccumulators of the toxic uh, harmful algae bloom and the specific toxin, domoic acid, of which has multiple congeners and derivatives that all act pretty much the same, but different in intensity. But an important one from a tox point of view, because very few people ever talk about Dovoic acid and just in Canada.
6: They never would have figured it out if the mice didn't do the weird scratching thing.
0: Yeah. And it's the same bioassay we actually use for botulism or a variety of other food poisoning things. It's like you inject the mice with the serum or the food product and we'll see what they do and then you inject a couple of other test mice with like wellness serum or normal food extracts and those ones live they therefore they've got the poison involved. Well... If that's not enough, you don't knock off eating fish between his last three cases. Let's see what happens with a meat lasagna. So, Gabe, tell us about that one. What could go wrong? All
7: right. So, this is a case uh, published in Frontiers and Pediatrics last September of 2022. Titled Multi Organ Failure Caused by Lasagnas, a case report of Bacillus Serious Food Poisoning. Um, so, this was an 11 year old who suffered multi organ failure, rapid DIC, and AKI, secondary to Bacillus Serious Food Poisoning after ingesting leftover three day old lasagna. And she required PICU admission for a mechanical ventilation, hemofiltration, high dose vasopressors, and antibiotics. So, kind of the scenario, um, there's, you know, it's a typical family, 13-year-old and 11-year-old sisters. Um, the summer had been especially warm, said at uh, 104 degrees during the daytime, um, and on this particular day, the uh, two sisters ate leftover lasagna um, that had been prepared three days prior and stored in a faulty refrigerator, um, and both sisters, um, uh, in line with our other cases of... Of people, um, they reported a smelly and bad taste of old cheese, um, and the thirteen-year-old stopped eating after a few bites. However, the eleven-year-old uh, says ate the entire platter of lasagna. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, within twenty minutes, both um, subjects began suffering abdominal pain and emesis. Um, after six hours of these symptoms, they were brought to the ER. Um, They were demonstrating clinical signs of dehydration, though their labs were unremarkable at this time. Um, They were both um, started on IV fluids. The 13-year-old improved quickly and was discharged after 48 hours of observation. Um, The patient in the case report, um, uh, so previously was healthy, 11-year-old female, um, and I'm not sure that she necessarily improved with the fluids. Um, initially, but then after 24 hours after admission, she began complaining of chest pain and intense abdominal pain. Um, Exam at that time showed she was tachycardic, hypotensive, having some hematemesis. Um, Her lab showed an AKI, acute liver failure, pancreatitis, rhabdomyolysis, and elevated cardiac enzymes. Um, So she was admitted to the PICU. Six hours after PICU admission, she suddenly became unresponsive with a GCS of eight. Um, so she was intubated, mechanically ventilated. Um, she became, became hypothermic um, and showed signs of hepatic encephalopathy and um, cerebral edema on transcranial Doppler. Um, her, she was noted to have hyperammonia at 230, um, and then she had an anuric AKI, her creatinine was 218. Um, and she had hyperkalemia of six point nine. She was tachycardic, and demonstrating signs of vasoplegic shock, despite um, um, fluid boluses and high dose epi, um, or sorry, high dose nor epi. So they started on uh, patient on angiotensin two, um, and then um, by day six of PICU admission, they were able to gradually wean the nor epi. Um, As far as um, um, antibiotic coverage, she was initially started on cefotaxime and mycophungin according to their local liver failure guidelines. Um, However, she had a negative workup of acute liver failure etiology, so they checked for hepatotropic viruses, um, autoimmune hepatitis, Wilson's disease, mitochondrial disorders, that was all negative. Um, so, then, kind of where it gets pertinent to Bacillus cereus, um, on day two of her PICU admission, um, they, someone suspected foodborne uh, Bacillus cereus disease, toxin mediated disease. Um, so, IV vancomycin and benzyl penicillin was started. Um, they took emesis and stool cultures, with, which both grew Bacillus cereus, um, and the cirulide cer- and uh, non hemolytic enterotoxins were found in the stool culture. Um, Just the non-hemolytic enterotoxin was found in the emesis. So they changed antibiotics to imipenem with psilastatin. And then repeat cultures on day five, repeat stool cultures on day five and 11 um, showed numerous uh, bacillus cereus colonies. Um, And then she had some rebound rhabdomyolysis. so they started um, a seven-day course of enteral vancomycin to decontaminate the digestive tract. Um, and her stool culture became negative five days after beginning that enteral vancomycin. And her lab values continued to improve. Um, her multi-organ dysfunction gradually improved. And with and she had complete neurologic and hepatic recovery um, after um, she's on hemofiltration for eight days. Um, By day 19, she was downgraded from PICU and was discharged home on day 40, and she had full neurologic, renal, and hepatic recovery upon discharge home and a 24-month follow-up. So happy ending there. A brief uh, then discussion about bacillus cereus, so it's an aerobic, gram-positive spore-forming bacteria. Um, It causes two types of foodborne poisoning. Um, It can be diarrheal and or emetic and they're both linked to toxins so um, the diarrheal syndrome is caused by the heat, label, heat labile enterotoxin um, which can be in several forms um, pertinent to this case was the non-hemolytic enterotoxin so this will cause watery diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting and then there's an emetic foodborne food poisoning form um, due to the preformed toxin in the food um, this is This this emetic toxin is called cirulide. This causes rapid onset nausea, vomiting, and abdominal cramping, and it's uh, resistant to heat um, and most usual hygienic food procedures. Um, So the emetic toxin directly acts on the vagus nerve and vomiting center in the CNS. Um, With both types of poisoning, um, symptoms are usually benign. However, there were some cases reported of rhabdo and or liver failure, um, as well as some lethal cases, uh, but most cases are benign. So this case was unique um, because she, this th- 11-year-old patient, suffered the signs and symptoms of the ingestion of the preformed sewer su- toxin, um, which is consistent with what the 13-year-old sister experienced, but the 11-year-old also had this clinical deterioration significantly significantly later than other um, published cases. And so they concluded it was likely secondary to these um, bacillus cereus colonies growing in her stool as they demonstrated on culture. Um, and then the um, also unique to this case, the treatment with the oral vancomycin um, did not cause any increase in toxic burden, which is something we think about when uh, the bacterial death occurs, um, but they did not demonstrate any um, increased toxic burden with the enterobanklomycin. And then uh, the eventual absence of bacillus cereus coincided with the patient's recovery, um, the the absence on stool culture. And then uh, she had a return of normal flora, GI flora, and then um, the authors mentioned they were unaware that this approach has been described before this case. so. Yeah, so I think most
0: of us remember bacillus. Oh, it's this benign thing you eat reheated rice, or actually pasta and pesto, are, are more common in parts of the world as being cause of it. But any starch can harbor bacillus, and you reheat it. It's been sitting out for two or three days. It's almost always the story in every case report I've written, and you develop um, a, a pattern cellular injury sometimes multi-organ system, like in this case, sometimes fatal, for the fellows the injury is a micro vesicular steatosis, so much like RAISE or RISE syndrome, much like valproic acid toxicity, and often that's the first things we think of because those are far more common etiologies than bacillus surrellae toxicity is. But this is a toxin mediated from a spore-forming bacteria disease, and so We get called on these when they happen, which is not very often, is something to keep our antennas up about when you hear liver injury and someone's starting knack and the only exposure was pasta or rice. So, those happened in France. The other fatal cases were in France. Before we leave France, I have to tell you, we have to jump to the next article, but I can tell you, but before this article came out, we had published a poster, it wasn't even published, a poster on 17 cases of what we deemed toxic squash syndrome. Shana Kuzin was the first author, as other people weird Poison Center back then, did that, and ever since that, somehow that poster got put on the web, and every time there was a toxic squash syndrome, suspected case anywhere, perhaps in the world, we somehow got called. Since Shana's number was not on the poster, my email was, I know most of those emails. So I was thrilled when, not too long ago, a gigantic series out of French with 353 patients was published, and it'll take the burden of the the expertise of the old soul expertise in the world off my shoulders and back on to the French publishers of this. So,
8: for that long introduction, Nathan, take it away. Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, this uh, was a retrospective series involving 353 patients um, that were all reported from the uh, French Poison Control Center. So A few years ago, French Poison Control had noticed an increasing number of calls relating to uh, squash ingestions. There's a lot of varieties of squash out there, some edible, some non-edible. Traditionally, they come from uh, curcubits, which is from the curcubata, the genus for multiple squash uh, species, um, including uh, coalescence, which are decorative gourds, uh, regular squash, zucchini, winter squash, pumpkin, those are all curcubata. Um, some squish or
5: some. <laughs> long day, <laughs> oh my god! Okay, um, <laughs> some
8: some some squishy squash. <laughs> can have a bitter taste, um, and that's traditionally been used as like a, a purgative property, which should be a first clue that it's potentially not edible. Um, um, however, the digestive toxicity of this genus is usually attributed to the presence of cytotoxic molecules called curcubic- curcubacins, or curcubidicins, I must say. Mm-hmm. So uh, they noticed um, several calls um, were increasing around the summer and fall months, so in 2018 they published this descriptive retrospective study that looked um, uh, at exposures that occurred between uh, January of 2012 through December of 2016. Um, there were a total of five, or 353 patients, um, and many of these were all involved in the same case. Um, so co-ingestions among multiple people. 95.5% of these cases involved ingestion. They don't talk about the other 4.5%, I don't want to think about that. Um, and the inclusion criteria were only cases that concerned symptomatic patients or asymptomatic patients that reported a bitter taste. Uh, The agents that were implicated, I already mentioned uh, coalescence, which are the decorative gourds. That accounted for about 49%. Next was the squash at about 28%, and subsequently um, zucchini, winter squash, and pumpkin, all in decreasing uh, percentage of these cases. 204 of these patients reported as um, symptomatic, and they usually involved a constellation of digestive symptoms, including diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Some patients had some hypotension and tachycardia largely related to the dehydration, but there were no uh, cases of uh, death amongst these patients. Now, it is uh, unclear at this point the exact relationship between their curcubitizens, the bitterness, and the toxicity. However, the recommendation is that any squash that has a bitter taste should be thrown out and not ingested. As far as where people get these um, different kinds of squash, supermarkets sell them either as decorative or um, food, and it didn't really have a conclusive uh, finding as to where they all came from. A lot of them came from markets themselves. Um, So the official recommendation is any squash that tastes bitter should be avoided, and even some of the more traditional, um, traditionally edible squashes like zucchini, for instance, can have an incidence of this um, digestive symptom constellation of symptoms that uh, usually revolve around uh, diarrhea and abdominal pain.
0: Yeah, so it doesn't produce a lethal illness like the other couple of ones we've heard, uh, talked about, but c- certainly discomfort for some of these people who have admitted to the hospital for a day or so, it seems, again, the older folks seem to do less well with a dehydrated illness like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. They mentioned in the article the Halloween season we see more with pumpkins and they see more zucchini and ratatouille and a variety of other things uh, as well. So is almost here and so all that leftover pumpkin, probably an early November problem, that will probably get a few phone calls on when we did the three or four year study we seem to get a couple every year around the fall. Other countries seem to get it too and some countries have moved to create regulations on this, but again, these are mostly people growing their toxic squash, uh, so to speak, at home. So yet another uh, toxin uh, on the side dish there. So finally, we have dessert for everybody. Um, Previously it was thought that Listeria monocytogenes was really a soft cheese problem, you know, warm, soft cheese um, that affected people until... Uh, 2010-ish, to 2015, when this report was written about an outbreak, a multi-state outbreak in the United States. Um, basically, they had been surveilling ice cream, and they said ice cream really shouldn't cause this problem because it's cold and it's frozen, and listeria shouldn't grow in ice cream. But they picked up a couple of cases at one factory that produced ice cream for this company, and they always call it Company X or Brand X or whatever else. I'll reveal what the company is because it's well-publicized afterwards at the end. Company A's ice cream had Listeria monocetogenes detected, but they didn't really do anything with it. They were doing whole genome sequencing and pulsed electrophoresis to sort of pr- identify it by sort of fingerprinting exactly which ones were involved. Well, it turns out in a hospital in Kansas, they were making milkshakes for everybody with this ice cream. And it wasn't in the first place where it happened, which was in South Carolina, but it was in Kansas. And then a whole bunch of people got sick. Well, not a whole bunch, four people got sick in Kansas. Considering they rarely have that many people in Kansas ever having listeria, and it was all in the same hospital, the health department stepped in to check it out. Um, and they did the same thing, create case definitions, and got the ice cream, and cultured it, and pulse electrophoresis it, and everything else, and eventually figured out as listeria. the ice cream specifically the chocolate ice cream cups and the ones ice cream cookies that were available so careful for those Um, then sure enough in Texas some more patients showed up Arizona and Oklahoma all by the same company in different plants and it took them about a year well about several months to kind of put this all together issue the right letters put together the right warnings And eventually, in April of 2015, about a month and a half after the first sort of notation, they were able to, like, pull the ice cream from the market. The company basically said, we're not going to distribute it anymore. They kind of took ownership for it. They realized that if they made a milkshake, you can't sit it out for more than two hours. Again, recurring theme here, something that's left out longer than its usable shelf life is always a problem, especially if it doesn't taste good. Um, And so this was due to listeria, sort of the teaching points here was ice cream, previously thought not to harbor listeria, yes, and can harbor listeria and can be responsible for multi outbreaks. They went inside the plant, and part of it was they were hosing down some of the machinery in the ice cream production, and if you get moisture in it and it just sits overnight, you don't really like wipe it completely dry, that sets up the perfect environment to grow listeria. So, um, listeria incidence in the U.S. has been increasing. 3% of U.S. listeria outbreaks uh, were traced to a source. So, most of the time, they never figure out where it's coming from, although soft cheeses has been the issue. So, finally, you can't have ice cream without a cherry on top. So, I brought a bar of maraschino cherries with the stems, so you can pull them out and eat them. So, anyone who wants one, feel free to pass those around and take them. Be warned, they contain FD&C number 40, which just this week, uh, Governor Newsom in California, amongst four other or three other products, have, has a ban. Won't go into effect until 2027, so eat your maraschinos while you can. But a little bit back, the maraschino, That's really hoard, hoard your maraschinos. Yeah. Uh, so you, you know. But FD&C 40 really wasn't the really bad culprit that was involved. Uh, maraschino cherries are used in a lot of drinks, uh, typically I mentioned here in this article, Tequila Sunrise and Shirley Temples, which is like, what do you do when you take your entire family to a restaurant and everyone's getting an alcoholic drink, and what do you get your eight-year-old? You get them a Shirley Temple, which is a non-alcoholic version of the drinks, get them started early, kind of thing. Um, and of course, you drop a little cherry in there. The original cherries were royal anne and rainier cherries, the little bing cherries, we'll put a footnote about that in a second. It was often what was used to make cherry coke, which is why we have the cherry coke on the table, and it's used in a garnish and variety of pastries and essentially the cherry on top. Well, the maraschino cherries comes from Croatia, and it's a meant meant to be a product of Dalmatia, um, and it's the marascha cherry which is very hard to find, and it's made with a maraschino liquor from it. Well, around Prohibition times, and you couldn't buy a liquor anymore, the, there was an Oregon niche uh, hook to this story. Um, a professor, Ernest Wigan, in the Department of Horticulture at Oregon State University, developed a modern method to make an alcohol-free maraschino charity. Um, and he perfected this using brine rather than alcohol and a variety of other things, including sulfites in some of the early formulas, which we had talked about, to preserve it. And some of his students later claimed that Prohibition had nothing to do with it. He was just looking for a process where he could make cherries large-scale. Here in Oregon, where many cherries grow, including the Bing cherry, which is grew here in the Portland metro area, named after a horticulturist named An Bing, um, who... uh, was uh, the one who hybridized it. Uh, so Weigand, a professor at O-H- uh, Oregon State University in the 1920s, perfected this cherry, and there was a bit of a to-do about it, like whether you can call it a true maraschino cherry or an artificial maraschino cherry, because it wasn't made with the original process. But eventually, the dye involved was F, D, and C, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act number four, although the other ones were used, and it was removed from the approved list of dyes that could put in foods in 1960. Uh, the ban for Red Four was lifted in 1965 after complaining by, guess what, the food industry. They tried to fool everybody and said, no, 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 nobody eats these cherries. They're just for decoration. Therefore, there's absolutely no reason to ban this coloration from a decorative item. That, they lifted the food ban, um, but eventually they figured out that that was a bunch of, you know, <laughs> thing, and they eventually the food banner red dye number four was reinstated about a year later. Almost all the maraschino cherries made in America, which are really artificial maraschino cherries, have F, D, and C red 40 as the colorant in there. Red 40 has been linked, associated, but not proven, to uh, thyroid cancers and because of that, uh, it was recently banned. It's been banned in Europe for quite a while. Um, and it was recently banned this week after I put this whole journal club together. Um, although the article was uh, in my, they were talking about this for many years about banning FDNC red number 40. is completely banned to go into effect in 2027. So, again, you have several years to chow down eat your uh, maraschino cherries, the artificial maraschino cherries that are available. Certainly here in Oregon, we can still make them, but uh, can't bring them to California. So with that concludes our Toxic Lunch. Thanks everyone for participating. Uh, we'll be back next time with yet
8: another journal club from the Oregon Poison Center. Um, thanks.